This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There is an expensive battle raging over a Colorado ballot measure. Proposition 112 would require more distance between new oil wells and homes. Supporters say wells are too close to where people live and play. But oil and gas companies say this plan threatens their very existence. Today, we'll answer your questions about Prop 112, which you submitted through our Colorado Wonders Project. Why don't we start with this report from CPR's Grace Hood, who covers energy and environment. Greeley resident Therese Gilbert is a mom, a seventh grade teacher. She's also an activist on a mission. This is my little petition bag. Gilbert volunteered for the group Colorado Rising over the summer to gather hundreds of signatures in support of Proposition 112. I could put a water bottle in there. I could put our little flyers in there. I could put my pens in there. Colorado Rising wants to increase the distance between wells and homes from 500 to 2,500 feet. That would be the biggest setback requirement in the country. Today, Gilbert uses her little bag to turn out voters. In purple Larimer County, Gilbert approaches 31-year-old Democratic voter Susanna Ruiz on the ground floor patio off her small apartment in Loveland. And this would put it 2,500 feet away because when things blow up, Especially if you're putting 24 wells by a school, the kids are going to get hurt. And some Colorado wells have exploded and burned. In 2017, an oil tank fire killed one worker and injured three. A home explosion in Firestone linked to an oil well killed two people and severely injured one. Gilbert gets a more positive response from grandmothers and moms like Ruiz. Ruiz likes the idea of more distance between new wells and her kids. I mean, if this is going to keep them away from their schools and stuff like that, I mean, obviously I would want my children safe, so... Welcome to the most expensive ballot measure battleground this year. The spending is lopsided. Colorado Rising, the environmental group, is being outspent 32 to 1. The money to beat this initiative comes from the oil and gas industry. Protect Colorado has raised more than $30 million this year to stop Proposition 112. So our job and our task is really to educate as many voters as we can. Karen Crummy is a spokesperson for Protect Colorado. The group spent $7.6 million last month alone on ad buys, political signs, and consulting services. You see, specific messaging for Latinos and women, like this ad voiced by a mom who lives in oil-rich Weld County. My kids have grown up with two things, the benefits of natural gas and oil and great schools. The two go hand in hand. Join me in voting no on 112. Crummy says Colorado energy companies provide hundreds of millions of tax dollars that can pay for schools, roads, and bridges. And companies already face some of the strictest regulations in the country. And what this initiative would do, because it's so extreme, which would be essentially to wipe out the industry. Colorado regulators found that increasing the distance between wells and homes could put as much as 85 percent of land off limits for new wells. But that number may be high. One Colorado School of Mines researcher found that just 58 percent of the subsurface underground would be inaccessible. That was top of mind for Loveland resident Jeff Van Horn. He surveys potential drilling sites. In his front yard, a red and white yard sign reads, Jobs Matter. Vote no on 112. We're certainly worried about it, and uh, people have been talking. That's where I got my signs from work. But what, then, so what if this were to pass? The yard sign doesn't scare off Therese Gilbert as she goes door to door in the neighborhood. What would you do? I'm just curious. Like, what do you think? What do I think? Well, yeah. certainly I would lose hours yeah. and pay, and uh, the, the clientele would shrink. 
Yeah. So the competition would be higher. Would you, though, do you have other uh, another skill set besides surveying that you would... Well, uh, yeah, playing bass, but it doesn't pay yeah, very much. Pay, yeah. <laughs> That's on the low it's scale. Good the yeah. It's good for the soul. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Therese Gilbert moves on to find a voter who hasn't yet made up their mind. Both groups are trying to connect with as many undecided voters as they can before Election Day. And Grace Hood joins us now to talk more about Proposition 112. She'll also answer your questions Hi, Grace. Hey there. First, what's at stake here? I mean, how big a deal would Prop 112 be? It's huge. I mean, the stakes are really high right now because things are good for the industry. You have oil companies that have hit record levels for production. The price of oil is starting to recover. Um, So the industry is really spending millions to protect the status quo. And as we point out, the spending is really dramatically lopsided on this issue. Uh, The latest campaign finance reports really continue to reflect that. Okay, let's answer CPR listener questions submitted through Colorado Wonders. Hi, this is John Mason from Denver. I've seen a lot of TV ads from opponents of Prop 112, telling large economic costs if voters approve the 2,500-foot setback. What analysis has been done? So uh, the one analysis that's most cited comes from state regulators, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. And we mentioned that earlier in the feature, as much as 85% of land could be off limits for future development. And if that's true, that's a lot. That's a significant hit there. It's important to point out that the analysis is based on surface land and um You know, the state analysis really only looked at surface land from which drillers uh, used to site their well pads. A school mines analysis looked at underground subsurface that drillers also need to access. And really for drilling to happen, you have to have both. you got to have a well pad located somewhere on the surface where the minerals are extracted. Then you go down vertically uh, and then you drill horizontally for sometimes between one to three miles. Yeah, I mean, I think of the innovation in horizontal drilling for miles, indeed. Has anyone taken that into account? I mean, does that mean this ballot issue could have less of an impact? So that's where we looked at this other school of mines analysis. Yeah. This professor found that 58% of future development would be off limits. So it's about half of land that would be off limits for future development. Versus the 85% in the other Yeah, funding. so it's significant, but it's not quite as dramatic as the state analysis. Now, you know, it's worth pointing out there are different opinions about this school of mines study. And I spoke with one faculty member who does question the conclusions. Does this measure prevent future home construction near existing wells? It, no, is the short answer. Okay. Um, home construction near existing wells is regulated by cities and counties. So there would be no impact. I mean, if you really want it, I mean, there could be, there are local regulations yeah. that restrict that, but, um, you know, there would be minimal impact. Okay. Now on to maybe some economic analysis with this listener question. Hello, this is Gerard Gilliland. I'd like to see a comparison of how the oil and gas industry fits into Colorado's overall economy. What is its size compared to other industries? 
So one way to look at this is to examine what percentage the industry is of Colorado's overall gross domestic product. So um, I looked at a couple of different years. 2014 was kind of the peak of the oil and gas boom Mm. in Colorado, and the industry accounted for about 7% of the state's GDP then. 7% at the height there. That's right. 2016 was a low point for the industry. It was about 3%. And 2018, um, you know, you see about 5%. So when you look at the average over 10 years for oil and gas extraction, um, you know, it's really uh, doesn't really fit into the top 10 industries for GDP, which is really led by things like real estate, IT services, manufacturing, healthcare. Okay, that comes as a surprise to me. What about jobs, though? Does the ranking change when you start to look at like employment associated with oil and gas? Also not really not seeing stuff in the top 10. So statewide, more than 29,000 people are directly employed by oil and gas companies. That's about 1% of the state's overall workforce. State data, though, does not track support services connected to the industry. So, um, you know, what's not captured in this number is maybe truck drivers who are driving water to oil and gas drilling sites. You know, one thing I will point out here, though, is that the impact of Proposition 112, if it's passed, would really be acutely felt in a place like Weld County, because that's where a lot of oil and gas workers live right now. Okay, so that impact might be uneven across the state, more concentrated in some communities. Uh, Here's another listener question on the numbers. Hi, this is Amy Rice from Louisville. I wonder how much or what percentage of the state's overall budget comes from taxes on oil and gas? So statewide taxes, uh, those are something called a severance tax that the oil and gas industry pays. Um, You know, look at between about 2012, 2017, the range was pretty wide between $4 million and $265 million. Um, That's less. It sounds like a lot. It's less than 1% of the state budget. Uh, and actually, the, the amount of severance tax that's paid is very small when you compare Colorado to, say, Alaska, where severance taxes make up more than 50 percent of you know, the coffers there. I'm surprised by the range of severance taxes from year to year. I guess that shows just how much the industry is prone to booms and busts. And it's all based off of the price of oil, as you may imagine. And, you know, one thing I really also want to point out is that uh, that, um, oil and gas companies also pay property taxes to local governments. So Weld County is bringing in tens of millions of dollars in property taxes that are based off of wells. And that's been a significant support there. Speaking again to this idea that some places might be more disproportionately affected than others if Prop 112 were to pass. Grace Hood, when you've been talking with voters, have you gotten any sense of from them that they might vote for this proposition because of concerns about climate change? Great question. So I was out in Loveland and was canvassing for several hours, mirroring, uh, kind of shadowing the uh, Colorado Rising Group, which is the environmental group that's in support of this. You were following the canvassers. I was following the canvassers. And I have to say, I mean, I did not hear a single voter bring that up as a priority. I understand that some environmental advocates are really bringing that up as a point. But my sense is it's sort of more of an intellectual point for uh, groups than something that might be top of mind for the majority of voters. Okay. On a similar theme, 
though advocates are touting cleaner air, safer conditions in general. What truth is there to those claims? So I I think it's really important to point out, just to sort of lay the groundwork here, um, Proposition 112 does not impact the 43,000 active wells in Colorado. So what's already there would stay. What's already there would stay. It would only impact how future permits and new wells Mm. are approved across the state. And one thing that's worth pointing out, so Colorado does have some of the strictest methane uh, restrictions and monitoring requirements in the country. Um, But there are other air pollutants, let's say benzene that could escape from oil and gas equipment. And I don't think that, you know, Prop 112 would have a dramatic effect in decreasing some of those other um, air pollutants because there's all these tens of thousands of wells that are already in operation. So, you know, one uh, area where I think potentially stronger argument could be made is that there are explosions that can happen around oil and gas wells. So they are rare, but uh, several have happened in recent years. One last year resulted in a worker death. And in Firestone, we saw two residents who died after this well leaked raw, unscented natural gas into the soil. So I think that placing future restrictions on wells 2,500 feet from, from homes, that would presumably make things safer. I appreciate this. Thank you. so much for answering these questions. CPR's energy reporter, Grace Hood, answering questions about Prop 112. And we should say that this proposition is not in a vacuum. The oil and gas industry is obviously concerned and has thrown its support and a lot of money into a constitutional amendment on the ballot. And we'll have more on that Thursday. If the long ballot in Colorado has you stressed this year, maybe this will help. Hi, I'm an actual doctor. From the people that brought you adulting comes prescription strength Voter RX, known in its generic form as voting. Voting is shown to relieve the painful symptoms of civic constipation and electile dysfunction in the voting populace. I bet you didn't expect to hear the words civic constipation and electile dysfunction on your radio today. That is, of course, a satirical public service announcement. It comes from some Colorado filmmakers encouraging you to vote. Voting has proven a hundred times more effective than posting on social media, assuming the fetal position, praying for the apocalypse, disowning family members, or moving to Canada. If you're an American 18 and over, voting is recommended for you. Voting doesn't work to change your thoughts about politics. Voter RX works to channel those feelings into effective participation in democracy. This comes from a Dream Tree film production in Boulder. They also did a parody PSA encouraging people to get outside called Nature RX. And now their sights are on November 6th. Side effects may include being able to better justify your existence, the ability to look your kids in the eye, decreased thoughts of suicide, and sleeping. So if you suffer from electile dysfunction, civic constipation, do the one thing we all can agree on and ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. If voting is right for you. If you want to watch the full video, I'll tweet it in just a bit at CPR Warner. Coming up, goodbye to Denver's polar bears. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. 
Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. But very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Sometime today, a crate is scheduled to leave the Denver Zoo carrying a big lump of fluffy white cargo. At least everything's fluffy except for the claws. Cranberry, a 700-pound polar bear, will head for a zoo in Alaska where the plan is for her to settle in and just maybe by this time next year become a mom. The move is something of a divorce for Cranberry and her current mate, Lee, who will leave Denver soon for Ohio. It'll be the first time in about 80 years Denver's had no polar bears. Before their departure, we stopped by the polar bear habitat. Now, is this Cranberry perched on that rock? Absolutely. This is Cranberry, our female. Um, She is about to turn 18 years old, and she has some, uh, looks like pumpkin guts that she is interested in up there. Seasonally appropriate food. I I just get the vaguest sense that she's posing for us. You might be right. She knows a special person when she sees her. Oh, okay. I see. That is animal curator Becca McCloskey. Now, Cranberry and Lee were supposed to have something of a love affair. That didn't exactly pan out. Not so much. We gave them seven tries. We gave them seven breeding seasons and no cubs to date. So uh, not so successful. Now, is it that they don't get along in terms of personality? Is this something physiological? It's hard to say. We know that they breed and we know that she doesn't produce cubs. So what happens between those two events is a little bit of a black box to us. Um, We can do and we have done um, hormone analyses to see if we can figure out what's going on. And those have to date been inconclusive. So it's a bit of a mystery. A little bit of a mystery, yeah. When was the most recent um, engagement? This spring. They spent some time together. Is it even vaguely possible that Cranberry is pregnant now? It is a very outside chance, but seven previous breeding season have taught us that it is unlikely. Um, so we are prepared for that. Alaska Zoo is prepared for that, but it's a very, very remote chance. Cranberry, that's B-E-A-R-Y, yes. is being transferred to Alaska where there might be a more suitable mate. Correct. Yeah. Lee is not here. Where's Lee? Lee is, he has access to some of his inside holding and also to our secondary exhibit. So we may go back and see Lee. Is that okay? I think you will. Before we do that, I want to bring in Brian Acone, who's Senior Vice President for Animal Sciences. And Brian, 
Help us understand why it's important that polar bears breed in captivity. Because, uh, you know, as you can see from the outpouring of support and the sadness that we've heard from our guests that they're leaving is people have connected with them. You can come and you can see a polar bear where almost all of them would probably never be able to do that. And if we don't think about most the Most people won't go to the poles. Most people are not going to go to the, just the North Pole. North Pole, uh, that's right. And go, and go see polar bears because it's just something that's out of reach for most people. Is there something we've learned about polar bears in the wild by studying them in captivity? Absolutely. So in the wild, they will collar bears to track them, and they've tested collars on bears in zoos. We have a lot of access to um, look at their hormones, look at their genetics, look at their reproductive habits. And there's a lot that we know about polar bears simply because we have access to them in zoos. So we gain a lot of information that we can then apply to saving wild populations. So Brian, you hinted at this, the, the connection that people feel to the polar bear I also think the polar bear is the sign of climate change, of who and what is affected. Do you think people have made enough of a connection? Because there doesn't seem to be much abating of climate change these days. I don't know that they've made enough of a connection, but I think that it's a great example of a creature out there that really stands for climate change and that there's things that you can do, anybody can do, in order to affect helping them in the wild. All right, should we go behind the scenes and see Lee? Absolutely. And then I'd love to know what it entails, transporting a polar bear. Now be careful when we get back there. We walk by the otter habitat and open a nondescript door to get to the polar bear holding, where two big crates sit to take Cranberry and Lee away. You can FedEx anything, it turns out. (laughs) Is it really FedEx? Absolutely. You're FedExing the bear. Yes. And so the bears will have tracking numbers. The bears do have tracking numbers, yes. yes. They also have two attendants with them at all times, so we're keeping an eye on the bears, making sure that they're healthy and happy and calm during transport. And will they be sedated at all? They won't be, no. It's important for them to be awake and have all their faculties because if they had an adverse reaction to medication or if something went wrong with the dosing, we don't have continual access to them. Um, So the pilot is in charge of when we're allowed to visit the crate. So if we're hitting um, turbulence or something, we may not be able to get to her at the drop of a hat. Now, we haven't really seen Lee yet, the male polar bear, but we do meet Jim Blankenship, I live in Denver, and I am a keeper here at the zoo. Jim's been with the zoo for more than 30 years, and he's about to entertain the bears. The term of art is enrichment. Uh, We give them enrichment throughout the day to try to uh, make it interesting for them. You probably saw the, the aftermath of the pumpkins out there today. Oh, I see. Those were whole pumpkins at the beginning. They were whole pumpkins, yes. What else do you do for enrichment? Oh, look at Lee is trotting about now. Oh, yeah. So we use all kind of different things. It's not just food. We uh, use toys. We ask them to do behaviors. Uh, and a lot of it is medical. So we ask them to present their paws to us, uh, open their mouth, present their sides. We do. Uh, he has allergies. So uh, every week we have to give him an allergy shot. So we have him line up here and give him a shot. And enrichment this time for Lee is jingle balls. They're like volleyballs that ring. His reward for bandying them about? Coconut milk. Meanwhile, Cranberry has come over to an upside-down trash can, and she has just knocked over a bunch of lids and has gotten some lettuce and is eating the lettuce. Let's check on these jingle balls next door. Hi. 
I, I know, we're staring. And there are the jingle balls. You can see why these bears will be missed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's heartbreaking. I love polar bears. I love these two individuals. And anybody out there who feels sad about polar bears leaving, I promise you the keepers who have relationships with them feel that tenfold. It's heartbreaking. But even their keepers know and chose that this is the right move. So we're making the hard choice for us, but what's right for them. So the keepers will miss them, but will Cranberry and Lee miss each other? I mean, they've spent years together. The answer is probably not. They have mostly avoided one another at the Denver Zoo, says Brian Acon. So polar bears are very solitary. They only actually come together for breeding. The keeper staff is very attuned to that, and so they introduce them, they hang out together, and then the keeper staff is very attuned to Cranberry saying, hey, we're done here. Enough I need already. You to leave, <laughs> uh, and I don't want you to be here anymore. And, and that's very natural, and I think when you see them together during that time, there's a notion to think that, hey, they love being together all the time, and it's, you know, how can we separate them? They spend their, most of their time apart here, actually, at Denver Zoo, and they want it that way. Cranberry is scheduled to leave town today for Alaska. Lee heads out soon for a zoo in Columbus, Ohio, in hopes they'll become parents with different mates. So will Denver ever have polar bears again? Yes, say zoo officials, someday, but they'd want to build a new state-of-the-art habitat. Until then, this creates more space for the zoo's brown bears. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Some very big companies are adding a new benefit for their employees, and that benefit is a higher education. These companies include Chipotle, Disney, and Walmart. A Colorado entrepreneur is helping drive this trend. We'll meet her today in Disruptors, our series about startups in Colorado. Rachel Carlson started Guild Education based in Denver. It helps connect employers and their employees to colleges, which in turn agree to offer tuition discounts. And Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm curious if companies are actually just helping their own employees move on. Are they sowing the seeds of turnover in a way by educating their workforce? So it really depends on the company. But yes, we're seeing that in this incredibly tight labor market, but also a labor market that's starting to change dramatically with, you know, careers of the future, jobs of the future, and this rapid pace of automation, that companies are thinking about both of those things at the same time. They're thinking about how do we help decrease retention and how do we figure out how to help our employees have a reason to stay here for a period of time? Increase retention. Increase, sorry. Yes, increase retention and uh, decrease turnover. But then they're also thinking about for the roles that we have today, which we might not be hiring for in large mass in the future, how do we help those employees advance beyond our company one day? Huh. An employee, an employer is thinking, how do I help my uh, employee advance beyond my company? Yes. That's so altruistic. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's altruistic, but it's also co- tied to the company's brand. And a lot of our companies are, uh, you know, 
pretty cognizant of the fact that a lot of their jobs are great jobs for people for three, four, five years, but aren't necessarily jobs that people hope to hold for 30, 40, 50 years. And so they're aware of the fact that in some instances, it might be the best case for their employee to work for them for three, four or five years and then move on, but stay happy customers and help enhance the company's brand over time. And that in turn has all kinds of ramifications for recruitment and retention in the long run. Beyond any individual employee, I suppose. Yes. Okay, so you've signed up companies like Chipotle, Lyft, Disney. Uh, you also have Walmart, the dialysis company, DeVita, and Healthcare Corporation of America. Uh, what exactly uh, is it that you provide? Because it, it strikes me that any company could just go to a college or university and say, let's strike a deal. You're a middle woman here. They could. And, you know, a bit of what we do is akin to a health care benefit. So if you think of the way Kaiser works. No. Kaiser's an integrated model that manages the whole health insurance for a company like ours. We use Kaiser, but they also connect us to a network of doctors. Guild does the same thing for a company. So we administer all of the complexities of offering an education benefit. And there are a lot of uh, tax components to this to make sure that it's tax efficient for the companies and a lot of details that have to be managed to help the student ideally be debt-free when they graduate, and we manage that. And then we also connect the schools, uh, this network of universities, to the employer. And and as you said, yes, a company could go strike a deal with one school, and you see that happen sometimes, but managing dozens or hundreds of those relationships tends not to be the core competency right, of, of a, a corporate HR team. Right, of a Chipotle. Yeah. They're about burritos, not necessarily connecting with institutions of higher education. Now, you are connecting uh, companies with bricks and mortar, uh, higher ed, but also online higher ed. What exactly are the workers getting out of this? Um, So, you know, talk about that in the tangible and then the intangibles. What they're getting is uh, tends to be either up 90 to 100 percent of their tuition paid for. My goodness. uh, At a number of schools within our network of schools. And that also includes coaching and advising, which we provide. So what we found is that many low and middle wage workers who haven't gone to college before, often their parents didn't go to college, they're first in their family. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends who have and they really need support navigating the whole process. So we have a team of coaches and advisors who help every student figure out where do I want to go to school? What program is aligned with the things I'm excited about in my career and moving either up within my company or beyond? And then a coach to work with you throughout your whole degree program to help you figure out how to succeed in college. Is this very expensive for companies? Like what is the cost benefit analysis that executives have to do before they sort of jump into higher ed as a benefit for their employees? So fortunately, the ROI is pretty fantastic. So most of our companies see a return on investment around 130% to 210%, meaning for every dollar they invest here, they see $1.30 to $2.10 come back into their corporate pockets How? in the form of recruitment uh, benefits. So uh, the, a lot of our companies see their um, job application rates go up by 20 to 30% when they announce a program like this. Because a program like this is a magnet that's borne out. Yep. And then the short-term retention benefits. So right now, a lot of the companies we work with see six to 12-month typical turnover, meaning the employee's only there for six to 12 months. That's expensive. And this can extend it to three or four years. So when you can hire one great employee once for four years versus hire eight employees over that four-year span, you reap a lot of savings. Say more about the kind of worker who takes advantage of this benefit. 
Sure. So they tend to be high potential employees. Um, typically, only three to five percent of an employee base will use a benefit like this in any given year. So it's not mass, um, but it's the employees who have been wanting to go to college but haven't been able to figure out how to navigate it, either the cost, the time management, or the things that have held them back from going back to school prior. Is it that they don't have their undergrad degrees at all? Mostly? Typically, okay. yeah. So we, our mission at Guild is to work with the 64 million Americans who haven't yet had a chance to either earn a bachelor's degree or a meaningful higher ed credential. Now, what is in it for the colleges and universities? Because they have to be at the table for this deal, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, of the American workforce, there's about 160 million Americans who work. 64 million of them haven't completed college, and about 30 million of them work at the Fortune 1000. And so we're helping connect universities who want to meet those 30 million of, it's about half of their addressable population, sit in the Fortune 1000. And so we help the universities meet them. Um, And what that does is dramatically reduce the university's marketing costs. And um, this isn't well known, but marketing and advertising costs are the the big devil of higher ed right now. So the the for-profit schools, the University of Phoenix is they spend four to $6,000 to acquire a student. And the nonprofit schools we work with can't afford that. And so what we do is we prevent them from having to spend four to $6,000 on Google and Facebook ads to find a student and instead meet that student directly through their company. And these are students that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be within their reach and Absolutely. vice versa, not necessarily potential students who would have known themselves to reach out to a college or a university. Exactly. Okay, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. How the heck do you make money? That's always a question in Disruptors yeah. is, you know, when entrepreneurs find some niche, how does it keep you afloat? Great question. So we capture the savings that the universities would have otherwise spent on Google and Facebook ads. They pass some of that marketing and advertising savings onto Guild to cover all of the services we offer. The they're also discounting tuition, though, right? They are. But yep, yep. So they're both paying you and they're discounting tuition. And it's still you say, is a benefit to the institutions of higher education. And that's because of the the crazy marketing and advertising market of higher ed today. Google's number one buyer in 2014 was higher education. Really? Mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of people are uneasy with the idea of nonprofit institutions, and you work with them exclusively, spending a lot of money on advertising, you know? Yeah, it's somewhat sideways, but it's a hard it's a hard thing to figure out because how else should they attract students? And otherwise, the for-profit schools are the only ones that low-income Americans have ever heard of. Do you think we will see more companies offering higher education as a benefit? Yes, We see it as a growing trend, and uh, the last year has only reinforced that pretty dramatically. Just briefly, I want to note that you started this company, Guild Education, in San Francisco and then moved to Denver. In just a few seconds, what prompted you to move? A couple of things. Talent market, culture, because we're a B Corp and we wanted a double bottom line, and I grew up here. And you grew up here. And cost maybe a little bit? Yes. Yeah. Although the divide between San Francisco and Denver is less than it used to be. Right. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Rachel Carlson is CEO of Denver-based Guild Education. Her company helps employers, including Chipotle and Walmart, offer tuition reimbursement to employees. And this is part of our series, Disruptors, about entrepreneurship in Colorado.
We get your feedback in loud and clear, and a number of you spoke up after our conversation about dueling transportation measures on the ballot. These are props 109 and 110. Mike Stieber of Boulder isn't impressed with either measure. He writes, sadly missing from the discussion was the simplest fix to the issue at hand, raising Colorado's fuel tax. We've irresponsibly failed to raise our fuel tax since the early 90s, yet it is the closest thing to a road user fee that we have. Why are our elected legislators behaving like ostriches, head in the sand, refusing to tax their constituents to pay for what all of us use every day? We also got feedback on our story about teen suicide on the Western Slope and solutions to prevent it. And one of those solutions is improving the lives of young people and holding young people up as perhaps role models. The thinking being that kids on the front lines or or young women or young men can be kind of the gatekeepers and help recognize their fellow peers, you know, who might be struggling Uh and may actually be, you know, easier to talk to. NPR's Kirk Sigler speaking with us last week about a program called Sources of Strength on the Western Slope. Scott Murray is deputy director of that program. He notes students who participate as a resource for other teens to talk to are not peer counselors, but rather peer leaders. He says Sources of Strength views the students as connectors to help and agents of change, but wants to be very clear that they're not asked to be junior psychologists or counselors. Well, there are all kinds of ways you can reach out to Colorado Matters. Find out how to get in touch at cpr.org slash connect. The Grateful Dead were an American music institution with legions of followers. Among them, Denver poet Bob Cooperman. He grew up seeing the dead perform in his hometown, New York City, in the late 1960s. Now he's written a book of poems about his favorite band. Cooperman sat down with CPR's resident deadhead, Vic Vela. Bob, your book is called Saved by the Dead. How did the Grateful Dead save you? Just listening to them just kept me sane. And, and uh, uh, when times were really crappy back in the late 60s, early 70s, Vietnam, for instance, music, you know, we thought music was going to you know, save the world. Well, it didn't, but at least it made it bearable. Mm. And, uh, so, and the dead was a huge part of that. Well, they were a soundtrack for an era that, that was not just for that era. It lasted decades longer than any of us thought it would. It, it, and it's still going on. Still I going mean, on. We, in 95, when I went to my last show, uh, right before Jerry Garcia died, um, there were grandfathers there with, 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 with three generations. And to an extent, I thought, this is not fair to subject little, little, little kids you know, to all this noise. <laughs> Because they did put out a tremendous amount of noise. I remember a neighbor. I was playing Dark Star for a neighbor of mine, and and he said, "Man, they make a lot of noise." And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> that's part of the point of it." <laughs> <laughs> In Dark Star, uh, I want to talk about um, this poem that you wrote. It was about your first experience hearing the dead play Dark Star. 
at the Fillmore East in New York City, where you grew up. Yes. Uh, this was in the late 1960s. Uh, the Fillmore East was a legendary music venue uh, in New York City. Of course, Denver has its own Fillmore on Col- Colfax. Dark Star is one of the Grateful Dead's ultimate vehicles for improv that can seemingly go on forever in a glorious way. And in this particular poem, you're hearing it for the first time. Can you read that for us? Certainly. Dark Star, a black hole. But to us at the old Fillmore that night, Dark Star meant the music of the spheres. Pythagoras might have been up near the stage, twirling to the beat the drums laid down. Hypnotic as a snake charmer, the guitars and keyboards weaving like the dance of DNA molecules, the universe forming that night. Garcia's guitar, a pterodactyl, soaring on thermals, diving for prey just under the surface, then stroking skyward again, higher and higher, almost more than music was capable of. And all the while we swayed like a field of wind-weaving barley on this night of pulsing planets, comets, and stars. When we left the concert hall, dawn was turning East Village buildings the color of doves. What the hell was that? One friend asked. I don't know, I answered, but I never wanted it to end. Another story I want to, um, that, that really jumped out for me uh, is you talk about being at a dentist's office and they're about to, <laughs> they're about to hammer away at your teeth yep. and they ask you what music you want to hear during the procedure. And of course you say Grateful Dead and you're laying back listening to the song Uncle John's Band. It takes you back to those old days at the Fillmore East when I had all my teeth and the night was painless with music and dancing. Is that an example of sort of the healing power of the Grateful Dead? I think so. Let's, let's put, be honest. The music itself, as Shakespeare said, had charms to soothe the savage breast. It's it's incredible how it calms me down as opposed to, let's say, uh, Jimi Hendrix who I, I used to play a lot when I would get stuck in traffic and I'd get really annoyed at, at the way tra- traffic didn't move. And so I'd put on, you know, like Voodoo Child or Purple Haze and just crank it loud just to, to annoy <laughs> everybody around me. <laughs> but with the dead, it's the opposite. It is, yeah. It's something very, as loud as it can be and as, as strange as it can be, it's something very peaceful about the music. It's, 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 it soothes me. Bob, you talk about marijuana in your poems. Well, <laughs> that was part of the experience. <laughs> well, and, the, and for many, pot and the Grateful Dead go hand yeah. in hand. You have this great poem called A Question Posed in Anthony's New York-Style Pizza Denver, where a young man asks you to help him buy weed. Can you read that for us, sure. please? A Question Posed in Anthony's New York-Style Pizza Denver. I'm in my usual rear booth in heaven with two slices cheese and the sports section when this kid stands next to my table. Yeah, 
I try to imitate a don, but don't have the requisite goons who toss his ass into the gutter. Excuse me, sir, he clears his throat. I start to reach for my wallet just to get rid of him, but it's not money he's after. I've been out of the country and understand grass is legal, but but the dude at the dispensary said I needed a card for, like, medical marijuana since recreational weed ain't sold yet. Can I borrow your card, he asks, and I'm 16 again, begging an old guy to buy a buddy and me a pint of cheap scotch. Sorry, I swim up from my past. I don't have one. He lingers, not believing me, flaps his arms against his sides at how difficult a simple request can be, and is gone. And part of me's worried he'll be waiting with something hard, heavy, or sharp to separate me from the card he believes I'm too spiteful a geezer to lend him. The other part's flattered. He thinks I'm young enough at heart to still toke up. But I'm wearing my Jerry Garcia cap, my Grateful Dead hoodie, the uniform that wafts me down Marijuana Lane, and I realize he was acting only on cold logic. (laughs) Bob, in your book, you talk a lot about uh, the interactions that you have with uh, people in your life and people who you meet uh, out in public, uh, out on the street and at stores. And some, it's funny because sometimes they don't always know what you're talking about, who the Grateful Dead was in the, to begin with, or who Jerry Garcia was. I want you to read this uh, poem called Never Trust Anyone Younger Than 30. Never trust anyone younger than 30. What a cool t-shirt the cashier gushes, young and pretty and carefree as a night of clubbing and no morning hangover. I smile, tell her the design A pastel tree rising from the bank of a cleaned-up Hudson River was painted by Jerry Garcia. A local artist, she asks. After my head stops vibrating like those cartoon characters smacked with skillets, I sigh. The lead guitarist of the Grateful Dead. Oh, yeah, she's trying to placate a good customer now. I should have known that. I relate the incident to a friend who tells me, When I asked my high school senior daughter if she knew who Garcia was, Zoe scrunched up her nose and guessed, a baseball player? We are so old, Charles and I agree. Afterwards, I play an old dead CD and dance around the bedroom, hoping for Beth to come home and reassure me our best years are still all ahead of us. Bob, you saw the dead uh, in the 60s, which I couldn't imagine, the early 70s. Um, and then you saw them again in uh, toward the end before Jerry Garcia died. He died in 1995. He was a long time. He had a long time history with drugs. Uh, he died of a heart attack in his sleep um, at a rehab center in California in, in August of 1995. That was a sad day uh, for a lot terrible. of people. Yeah, I remember we were I was cleaning the house because some friends from out of town were coming. And and I got a phone call, and my, Beth, my wife, was on the phone, and I was saying, "What's up?" And and she said, "You haven't heard, have you?" And I said, "No, what?" And he said, "She said Derry, Jerry died," and I remember putting the phone down and just sitting there, and it was embarrassing to me how much grief I felt because I'd never met the man. I wouldn't know what to say to him if we were stuck in an elevator together. You know, I just loved the music and I knew he was a reprobate, you know, and, you know, and so was I, but, uh, you know, and uh, he was less than an angel, but he, the music he played was angelic and I, it really meant, you know, the world to me and I just, 
and uh, it, our friend's visit was kind of ruined. And it was it was because of that, and I, I felt you know annoyed at myself for being that you know that overwhelmed. And I remember, well, they they, they didn't make it any easier because they had tickets for the for the, we living in Baltimore, tickets for the Holocaust Museum, and we went. I got lost in the museum. I sat down in the in the hall of the Righteous of the Nations and just sobbed. And it was partly because of the, the, the museum, which was overwhelming experience, and partly because I was mourning Jerry, and I thought, I haven't felt this crappy since my father died. Fare you well, fare you well, I love you more than words can tell. Listen to the sing sweet songs to rock my soul. You write, I still smile when I hear the words grateful and dead in the same sentence. The dead still make me smile. They still make me laugh. They still make me cry. Is that true for you? And oh, you th- And will that ever go away? No, it'll never go away. You know, um, they had a tremendous repertoire, much bigger than other bands, uh, because they also did a lot of covers of old folk music, of of uh, blues. Uh, weird, st- you know. They even you know did a couple of show tunes every now and then. They, you know, they were. I kind of look at them as a walking encyclopedia of American music of the twentieth, nineteenth, and twentieth century. They do a cover of an of a very lovely sounding folk song by Bonnie Dobson called Walk Me Out in the Morning Dew. And if you don't really know the subtext, you think, oh, this is a nice little song. It's about World War Three, And, uh, you know, where have all the people gone? Where have all the children gone? You know, and the, and the refrain is, you never thought about them before. Why think about them now? I'm, I'm not getting it right, but that's what it boils down to. They turned it in, in, into a, sh- a Shakespearean tragedy, and it, it, it's just, and the, the guitar really adds to it. A lot of times, in, in a lot of '60s music, the guitar is just kind of gratuitously loud and long. Never true of the dead. You know, I remember one time Garcia said, "I serve the music," and everything had a purpose. You know, when they were at their best. Sometimes they weren't at their best, you know, when, when Jerry was, you know, stoned, whatever. But at their best, you can't take a note out and it'll still be the same thing. And and that version of Walking Out in the Morning Dew is, is it's chilling. It's it's so good. And especially after, after you think the song is over and then Garcia pulls another couple of tricks out of his bag and then it's over after another five or six minutes. Yes, it Anyway. 
CPR's Vic Vela speaking with Denver poet Bob Cooperman, whose new collection is Saved by the Dead. And we're grateful that you could join us on Colorado Matters today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News in Centennial.